This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Billy Joel, and he's had some career, folks, 150 million-plus albums and records sold. That's ridiculous. In fact, he's the third biggest solo artist in record sales of all time, bigger than Springsteen, Madonna, or Michael Jackson. And we're about to tell you the story of a song, a Billy Joel song, one you may know, one you may not know, but you're about to get to know it, and it's called Lullaby. And every once in a while, Billy Joel goes around the country and talks to colleges about the music of the music business, the art of writing music, and also the business of the music business, and lots of stories in between. On one particular occasion at the University of Pennsylvania, a young mom asked Billy Joel a question about her favorite song, Lullaby, and how it came to be. Joel explained that the song came about because his daughter, who had just turned seven, had asked him some pretty tough questions. Let's take a listen. So I had this, 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 uh, this melody... which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They they take them with you. So, uh... But also, this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing, like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it was was a tough answer, you know, in in both respects. Joel stammers for a bit, but then sits down in front of the keyboards and starts to perform. Like a boat out on the ocean 
this point, Joel starts to stammer a little bit, gets very emotional, because, well, he doesn't give this explanation at Madison Square Garden, and my guess is he hasn't thought about the connection of how this song had been made in a very long time. But then he gets it together, steps back up to the keyboards, and closes things out with this stunning final verse. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream, and dream how wonderful Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always Be a part of me Someday What a story. Billy Joel just trying to answer a question of his baby girls. So he wrote a song to sing to her. One she could sing to her baby girl. And her baby girl could sing to hers. Or her baby boy. It's a song all of us can sing to all of our boys and girls. It's the story of a song, and that's the thing about music. It transcends time, race, class, and geography. And that's why we love to do these stories. The story of a song, Billy Joel's Lullaby, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about Justin McElroy, a Huntington, West Virginia native who, like many of us, started his career on one path, but wound up on a completely different one. Here to tell us about it is Justin. I sort of got an acting and directing degree by default, um, which is to say I didn't think about it much. I just sort of liked doing theater and didn't have much of a plan beyond that. I guess I, on some level I assumed that if I had that, then I would either, like, I couldn't get a boring job. Like, there's so, only so many jobs uh, you can do with a theater major, um, and uh, that was about as far as the thinking went. Um, and at a certain point, um, probably about my junior year of college, I wasn't getting cast in, like, lead roles, and it occurred to me, I had this thought, man, if I can't get lead roles at my college in West Virginia, how I don't think I'm going to go to New York and make a living doing this. And like, I realized that I tried to, I almost switched my major to journalism, just, you know, where the real money is. Uh, but I didn't, I just kind of stuck it out. Ended up going to college for five years because I failed Spanish. Ah, eh, them's the breaks. And, uh, <laughs> And then I graduated and uh, immediately put my degree to use uh, working at Best Buy uh, and Borders, the now defunct Borders. I like started freelancing while I was still working at um, Best Buy and Borders, um, writing a weekly section called The Edge. The Edge. From my uh, local newspaper that was like youth focused, um, you know, young people doing cool stuff in the area and I did that for years I did that to like because nobody else wanted to do it and uh, that's how I got my first job as a news editor at the Ironton Tribune I worked out from a reporter to news editor uh, which I was in no way qualified to do but I was cheap uh, and I started I, from there I transitioned to the Herald Dispatch which is my local newspaper it's my hometown here in Huntington West Virginia covering Marshall University the university beat uh, as it was I was actually there at a really fun time because it was uh, when they were filming the, the movie We Are Marshall. And the entire town was losing its mind. I mean, absolutely melting down with like frequent sightings of Matthew McConaughey and Matthew Fox and assorted and sundry other Matthews. Um, it, it, yeah, you cannot go into a subway here without the, there, there being a picture of Matthew McConaughey from the time he was in subway. <laughs> it's, it is, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. All right, all right, all right. The entire time that I, I was working uh, in news, what I wanted to do was write about video games. I mean, that's where my, um, really my passion was. I, I had grown up on not just video games, but video game journalism. Like I had like four different magazine subscriptions to different video game publications growing up. Um, and it was, it was something I really cared a lot about. And I wanted to transition from writing straight news to write about video games because I thought that would just be the most fun thing in the world. But I started applying, trying to like do freelance gigs, trying to pitch articles, trying to take um, the tactic that eventually worked was offering to do reviews that no one else would want to do. Just like bitter dregs, bottom of the barrel, uh, several hunting games. Um, and that's eventually how I started building up clips. And I, and I got into this race to try to 
work at as many magazines as I could before they got closed down because they were like a dying breed just as I was getting started. So I was like, okay, I got to get into official Xbox magazine and PlayStation, the official magazine and GamePro and PC Gamer and, you know, and on and on just so I could like get the clip before. And like after I worked at one, I would just stop because it's like, okay, I got that clip. I, I want to see how many different magazines I can get so I can put them on my, my resume because I think I had a sense that that would make me seem very distinguished. Uh, pretty quickly as these faded out of existence. But um, the story of how I got actually got hired at Joystick is hilarious and terrifying because I, I put, so I put uh, my whole career, the reason I got onto this trajectory um, and everything that came after that was started with Joystick, which was AOL's video game blog. I had applied to Joystick and hadn't heard and like I, I was doing this with every publication every gaming publication i applied to joystick because i really like joystick and i applied to joystick and uh didn't hear anything for months and just to say and they hired two other people and uh meanwhile i was writing about video games for like the newspaper the herald dispatch let me keep my own video game blog and it was who cares like no one's gonna read my video game blog but i made it seem like something we should have you know, we really need a, a video game blog, guys. So I was, I was writing, a, it was called Blog the Video Game, which is stupid. Um, but I was, uh, so I was writing that, and uh, I found some old clips of this Laserdisc game called Gallagher's Gallery. And I thought, you know, Joystick might be interested in posting these. Uh, so I sent them off to Joystick, and the editor, Chris Grant, saw them. He is uh, a lovely person, but can be a little bit scatterbrained sometimes. Said, oh, th- yeah, I, I was looking for your, I'm glad you sent this. I was looking for your content information. The people we hired didn't work out, but I remember liking your clips. And I was wondering if you, um, you know, would still be open to, to working for us. There's a wild sequence of events uh, that, that would take from A to B were like, I had to find that Gallagher's gallery clip and I had to write a post about it and just happen to send it to Joystick. And like, there's a lot of luck tied up in that and it's pretty scary, but it's also like, I think there's something to be learned there from just who, who knows? Nobody knows. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Try everything. Cause you never know what spaghetti's going to stick to the wall, honestly. We left Joystick, Chris Grant, Griffin, and I all left Joystick, and Arthur Geese uh, left Joystick, and we were sort of the four uh, first people uh, of the eight co-founders of Polygon. So I started, I mean, I was the managing editor, sort of the number two person when, when we founded the site. Um, I was really involved with Chris for a lot of... Uh, uh, the aesthetic decisions and the managerial decisions and figuring out who to uh, bring on and, and everything. Um, so I was sort of like his, his number two person um, and responsible for a lot of the stuff on the site. When we were at Joystick, uh, we did the Joystick podcast. We did 200 some episodes and really helped, it really built a really decent following. And the audience for the joystick podcast was sort of like the seed audience or the base group of people that my brother, my brother and me, when we launched was built from the joystick podcast audience because they were very rabid and supportive. And I've done that with every podcast I've launched since then has been about 
building off a seed audience, a core audience, and then moving them to a new thing. My brothers had lived in Huntington for my whole life. And when Travis went to college, uh, he, he went to school in Oklahoma University, and then Griffin went to school at Marshall, and then the two of them moved to Cincinnati. And uh, I found that like we had started to lose touch. I mean, we weren't talking as much as we used to, not nearly as much as we used to. And uh, I wanted to see what we could do to change that. So my brother, my brother, me really started as an opportunity for the three of us to keep in better contact to talk to each other more um griffin and i were in video games in that industry but travis really didn't know uh that space particularly well um so we picked advice as like just sort of a general topic that all three of us could like bloviate on um you know tell people how to live their lives it seemed pretty easy um and at that point in in podcasting it was 2010 you didn't really need a great premise for a podcast. I mean, there was only like four of them. <laughs> so like, that's exaggeration, but like there weren't a lot. So, it, you know, it, it is a much different day. You have to, uh, <laughs> you know, these days you have to be very focused with your hitches, but um, we we had a pretty general one from a brother or brother me, but it, it worked out okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, I've uh, just my baby monitor has just begun to go off. So I need to go upstairs and get the, my kiddo. If you need any like pickup stuff or anything, you know, you know, this is missing. Just give me a buzz and we'll just like hop back on Skype or whatever. It's, it's no big deal. And that's how Justin left things off. And we wanted to know more. And by the way, what a unique voice. And we love voices from every industry, every age group and every part of this great country. And my goodness, we wanted to hear more from Justin, and we know you do too. So after the break, we'll bring you more of his unlikely story and how despite numerous podcasts and hundreds of millions of downloads, they've kept family at the center of it all. Justin McElroy's story, here on Our American Stories. with Justin McElroy's story and we had heard about how he started a podcast to keep in touch with his brothers. Well, that just sort of accident, that just sort of diversion ended up becoming his living. My Brother, My Brother and Me is one podcast, The Adventure Zone, and so many others. And that's the story of life. And we love telling stories like this on Our American Stories. Now let's hear about how much family means to Justin and how he's used his success to give back to his community. Back to Justin McElroy's story. We grew up goofy on each other, um, and that was the way that we would communicate. We would you know, try to make each other laugh, try to make dad or mom laugh. 
Um, and it was like a primary form of communication in our house. You know, things didn't get serious for too long. Um, I've later learned uh, in my adult years, sometimes to our detriment, there's a lot of like conversations that it's hard to work gags into, you know, but um, it can get tricky. We've, we've always said that like, if, especially as it became more of a job, we, we had to have a lot of really hard conversations. Like if this ever gets in the way of us being a family, like we have to stop, like the whole thing will stop. And having that there as sort of a escape hatch, no fight could ever be too big because you can't really walk away from it because it's your family. So you better figure out how to make it work. Um, and and I think that like we've we've kept that spirit through all of it. Like our relationship as a family is always more important than the work. There's no um, creative decision or anything that that equals that. So. When we do that, we keep that in perspective. I think it makes for a really fun place to to collaborate in um, because you're you're stuck with your collaborators. I trust my family um, more than anybody on the planet, and I am myself. At the for the most, the people who are in my family are the people that that truly know me, with with just a couple of exceptions. Um, so very dear friends, but, but by and large, I mean, my family is it. Um, and especially now that I have kids, that's it. Having children for me has like clarified so much of what we do because there is a point to all of it. And there's a value to, um, every moment that I'm creating something is, uh, a moment that I'm not spending with my kids. So I really, it has to all count. It has to all be worthwhile. Um, and involving them in like when we go on tour and bringing our, our children um, has made it seem so much more purposeful um, and so much more worthwhile. Uh, and, and that's really important to me and, and is a huge reason that, that this continues to be sort of the best, best job I've ever had. We are probably in communication more than any family, certainly a family of adults that I know. I mean, we talk constantly. Um, and there's a warmth there and a familiarity, I think, that a lot of families don't have just because they're not in the, like, forced <laughs> proximity that we constantly are. I'm not complaining. It's just it's just the, the, the facts of it. The Appalachian region uh, that that I am from is almost never represented well um, uh, in in mainstream media. I mean, there have been a couple of different TV shows. The the one TV show that was filmed in Huntington was Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, and that was uh, a show about him coming to Huntington to teach people how to eat because everyone was so overweight. Um, and it's like that's that's like emblematic of uh, there was another show called like Big and Loving It or something like that that was like people wanted to come like come and film people who are overweight and just like thrilled about it and that 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 project didn't come to fruition but um, the my region is very rarely represented very well uh, that that sort of idea that these states that aren't New York or California are just sort of like untenable backwaters that that from which no good can arise 
there's so many cool, interesting people here, and their stories just aren't being told. Like it's not, it's it, it you know, it doesn't have that like mainstream exposure. Th- th- those stories just aren't out there. And for me, the podcast studio was just kind of a way to streamline it for people because um, podcasting is not especially challenging to do. It's hard to do well, but it's not hard to do. And um, I felt like if, if we could save a few steps, then maybe, uh, you know, we might be able to encourage some people to get some of those voices, some of those voices out there. I think the most effective way to tell their story is to let them tell it. Uh, and I feel like podcasting is a really great way to do that because there's very little barrier to entry. Anybody can pull a show together and broadcast a show and, and, and grow that audience. Um, not to say everybody finds an audience, but it, but the barrier to like creating the content is low. Um, and I think that that like really empowers people to tell their own story and not have to rely on others to, to tell it for them. And I feel like the people here, uh, um, it's the sort of thing where they would, it, it is a tradition of, of storytellers, right? Like, folk tales and stuff like that like is part of our heritage but um i think just digitizing that and bringing it to a wider uh community of people i think is the best way to start to shift those stereotypes about people from this region and like and and uh, i think it's amazing that the internet has allowed people to to do that we got this thing uh in our area called the um the empty stockings list and it comes out every Christmas. And it's like people in the tri-state area, which for us is we're right on the border of Ohio and Kentucky in, in Huntington. So we think of that as like a region with Ashland and um, like South Point and Ironton place in, in Ohio. But uh, people in the tri-state area that don't, aren't going to have anything for Christmas. And I think it was like five years ago, I was reading this list and it's like so depressing because it's not just like kids who want a Paw Patrol toy, although there is that. Um, but it's like people who don't, who would like a, a better tent for sleeping on the river and people who like don't have a bed and stuff. And I took this list of, it's probably like 200 people. And I took this list to our, our Facebook page. And I said, like, if anybody that will help with this, that anybody that will do like give to this and buy something, we will record a personal thank you to you. Um, and we, we did that. It was called the Mabimam angels is what I started calling them because they filled the entire list in the matter of a week. They bought it all. And then the following year, we didn't ask, they just did it. And they, the list came out and they filled it all. Uh, and then the newspaper that puts the list together started giving it to them early and adding more things to it. And then after they fill the needs, they raise money and they've bought, uh, beds and uh, furnaces and uh, uh, handicap accessible ramps and um, I mean like it's it's wild and it is like so not us it is just them like in say last year and for the 2018 Christmas season they did they did not us they did 16 beds uh, 32 pillows two sofas two ovens two strollers a car seat a refrigerator, table and chairs, eight space heaters, clothes, shoes, and toys for every kid on the list. And it's like, it's like, I, I, that's not me. It's just, I'm really fortunate to have really good people who like our stuff. And when you're fortunate to have that, it just seems weird to not, you know, point it towards your home. Mm-hmm.
And you were just listening to Justin McElroy, and great job on that to our team, as always. And we've long opined that the South, Appalachia, a lot of flyover country, well, it's just, if not misrepresented, not covered at all. And I'm not sure which is worse, uh, being slighted or being ignored. But here at Our American Stories, we do the opposite, just as Justin does. So many interesting and remarkable people live all over this great country, and that's why we decided to do a big national show out of a small town, because they all come from big towns. And that doesn't make any sense. Justin McElroy's story, a bit of a story about a misfit who just, well, never fit in until he did and found his vocation by stumbling into it and a story about his hometown, too. Again, Justin McElroy's story here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories. And our next story comes to us from a man whose YouTube videos are followed by hundreds of thousands of viewers of all ages. He's known simply as the history guy. And we spend a lot of time telling stories about the past. And that's every kind of story about the past. Because if you don't know who you are, well, you can't know who you're going to be. And so much of the story of who we are is the story of the past. And so that's why we spend a lot of time on history. So here's the history guy with the story he calls Centerline, the surprising history of lane markings. When Americans first started driving automobiles, we really hadn't set up rules or laws to operate the thing safely. In fact, for most of many decades, there wasn't even a line down the center of the road to delineate the lanes. In the fall of 1917, Dr. June McCarroll was driving her Ford Model T down the road near Indio, California when she was run off the road by a truck. She later said of the event, My Model T Ford and I found ourselves face to face with a truck on a paved highway. It didn't take me long to choose between the Sandy Berth to the right and the 10-ton truck to the left. And that's when I had my idea, penning a white line down the center of the highways of the country as a safety measure. The California Department of Transportation credits Dr. McCarroll with the idea of painting a center line, but she wasn't actually the first to have that idea. You know, today that line down the middle of the hundreds of thousands of miles of roads around the world is, is so common. It makes such common sense, it's hard to imagine roads without them. But the history of delineating lanes on roads is actually surprising. And it deserves to be remembered. There are some early examples of lane marking. Well, jubilee years, years of forgiveness, are mentioned in the Bible, chapter of Leviticus. The tradition in the Western Catholic Church was started by Pope Boniface VIII in 1300 AD. So many people, as many as 200,000, came to Rome for the event that Boniface had a continuous line painted down the middle of each road in Rome to help manage the crowds. The line did not, however, denote the direction of traffic, but the type. Horses and carts would be on one side, foot traffic on the other. In 1600 AD, a road near Mexico City used lighter colored stones to denote a center line. Markings of a center line were used sporadically on bridges in the U.S. and elsewhere in the 19th century. New York City was using pavement lines to mark crosswalks as early as 1911. Conventions for the direction of travel developed with time and were largely set by the 19th century, although the world still not come to an agreement whether traffic should move to the left or to the right. 
Early traffic tended to have the traveler on the left, a tradition possibly derived so that your sword hand would face the road in case the person on the other side was an enemy. America took the convention of traffic moving on the right, a tradition which developed in the 18th century to make it easier to pass large agricultural wagons where the driver would control the horse team from the left rear horse, leaving his right hand free to control the whip. It was easier for the driver to see that he was clearing traffic that was passing to his left. Keep to the right laws were passed in both France and the United States in 1792. England, however, continued the tradition of traffic moving on the left, which was codified in the Highway Act of 1835 and is still followed in most of the former British Empire. But roads, for the most part, still did not have marked lanes, but the advent of the automobile and greater speeds made the need for such markings more apparent. Somewhat surprisingly, the move to mark those lanes appeared to originate in the United States. Cars became a sensation in the States. Between 1907 and 1917, they essentially replaced horses and carriages as the primary mode of transportation, a transition that was so quick that it outpaced society's ability to adjust. In 1910, there were only five cars per 1,000 people in the United States. But by 1920, that number had increased 17-fold to 86 per 1,000. When the Model T was introduced in 1908, it sold for $825. By 1912, the Model T runabout sold for $525, less than the average annual income in America, and the price continued to drop to a mere $290 in 1927. Cars became ubiquitous very soon after they were introduced. They became faster and faster, and paved roadways proliferated in an attempt to keep up. By 1918, there were over 10,000 motor vehicle deaths in the U.S. a year. As with many innovations, safety precautions and law systems were slow to keep up with the pace of technological change. It took a single decade for cars to become the primary mode of transportation in the United States, and the speeds men could now go with ease produced problems that had never been considered properly. In 1901, Connecticut became the first state in the country to institute a speed limit on motor vehicles, 12 miles an hour in town, 15 miles an hour on rural roads. Cars could go much faster than that. In 1911, a world record had been set by Bob Berman at Daytona Beach by going 141 miles an hour. While most cars couldn't go that fast, they had turned trips that took days into a matter of mere hours. One of the greatest challenges was lanes. With wagons and carriages, muddy roads developed ruts that were easy to follow. And while accidents were not trivial, they moved slowly enough that it was comparatively simple to avoid someone else on the road. While there is some disagreement, the first appearance of lane markings in the U.S. has been traced to Michigan, according to the Michigan Department of Transportation. The first line was painted in 1911 on River Road in Wayne County, Michigan, put there at the instigation of Edward N. Hines. Edward was a major innovator in road safety, spearheading the Good Roads Organization to improve public roads in Michigan in the 1890s. Hines also built the first stretch of concrete road in the world in 1909 and served on the Wayne County Board of Roads when it was created in 1906, alongside Henry Ford himself. Hines was said to have the original idea of pinning a line down the middle of the road when he saw a milk truck go by that was leaking milk and thus leaving a white line behind him as it passed. And while the idea has become since a bedrock of traffic control, it took some time for it to catch on nationally. In 1917, in addition to Dr. McCarroll, several other people had the idea to paint lines, apparently independently of one another, in three different states. In Michigan, Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer, as engineer superintendent of Marquette County, painted a white center line along a dead man's curve. In Oregon, Deputy Sheriff Peter Rexford came up with the idea while on a bus driving on a dark rainy night. 
The county refused to fund the project, so Chief Deputy Martin Pratt paid for the paint that was later painted on the Columbia River Highway between Crown Point and Multnomah Falls in April 1917. It was later that fall that Dr. McCarroll was run off the road near Indio, California. Dr. McCarroll holds a unique place in the story, however, because her work went beyond just coming up with the idea. When the local Chamber of Commerce was uninterested in her plan, McCarroll painted the line herself. She instigated a letter-writing campaign that would help convince the state of California to adopt the measure universally in November 1924, and the State Highway Commission painted the lines. But at the time, there were few, if any, standards or guiding principles for markings, and where those standards or guiding principles did exist, they were on a local level, and there was no coordination between local agencies. In 1930, the National Conference on Street and Highway Safety published a manual on street traffic signs, signals, and markings. The manual recommended pavement lane markings in a number of cases, for example on curves of less than 600 foot radius, and also on hill crests where the view ahead is insufficient to permit overtaking the passing in safety. Center lines were also recommended on streets with high traffic both directions, and streets wide enough to have more than one lane either direction. Lines were recommended to be at least 4 inches wide, and be white or yellow on bituminous pavement, and black or white on concrete. The use of black lane markings became less popular during the Second World War, when black markings could not be seen while driving under blackout conditions. The use of broken lines to note places where lane changing is permitted was not defined until a new manual was produced in 1948. The original purpose of the dashed lines was to save costs by reducing the amount of paint needed to mark lanes. The length of the lines and gaps was not defined, but the manual said it should be well proportioned. The manual further noted that on rural highways, a commonly used standard of 15-foot segments with 25 gaps was normal. No national standard was adopted until 1978. Research shows that people tend to underestimate the length of the broken lines, with people surveyed most commonly assuming that the lines are two feet long with equal gaps in between. In fact, since 1978, the broken lines in the U.S. are standardized to be 10 feet long with a 30-foot gap in between. Thus, every time your car passes a new dashed line, it has traveled 40 feet, far further than most people assume. For years, states had local rules for what colors of paint to use on the roads for different purposes, and especially heated was the debate between whether white or yellow paint should be used to divide highways. By November 1954, 43 years after the first center line was painted, 47 of the then 48 states had decided to use white as the dividing line, and Oregon, the last state, capitulated later that year. In 1958, the interstate U.S. Bureau of Public Roads adopted white lines to divide lanes. But in 1971, the Federal Highway Administration required now that all center lines on two-way roads be painted yellow, while white center lines were used to demarcate lanes of traffic going in the same direction, the now familiar system that we use today. The history of painting centerline road markers tells us that a few people with a good idea willing to make a small change could make, well, a large difference. Today, both Edward Hines and Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer are in the Michigan Transportation Hall of Honor. And the section of road on which Dr. McCarroll first painted her white line is now named in her honor, the Dr. June McCarroll Memorial Freeway. That was the history guy you've been listening to. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. And by the way, I love a little quote he had, and I'm going to read you as we, as we leave this hour. I have always loved history, a passion I got from my mother, who emphasized education. And my father liked John Wayne movies. 
While I earned a degree in history, life took me elsewhere, and after careers in education and the corporate world, I decided to follow my passion and tell the stories of forgotten history I've always loved to tell. I believe that history does not have to be boring. History might be tragic, it might be comic, but it's the story of who we are, and we should not be afraid to enjoy that story and be moved by that story. The surprising story of lane markings here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And as you know, we love telling stories about music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's just something about singing about music that just, well, we stop thinking and we start feeling. Many aspiring young musicians dream of becoming rock stars, but very few reach that status. Jack Sonny is one of the few who had a brush with fame that would change his life forever when he became a guitarist for a band called Dire Straits. I'm the last person to mention that part of my history. You know, it'll come up in conversation, or if I'm at a dinner party and I'm getting introduced and stuff, that's not how I identify myself any longer. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Um, it was an absolute dream come true, obviously, to play in a band at that on that stage you know, of their career. The band was absolutely the biggest band in the world at that time. Both my grandfathers were coal miners, Italian on one side, Swedish-Polish on the other side, my mom's side. And uh, my dad, we were, uh, when he was in the Army, when I was you know, an infant and up to two years old, we were in the South. So Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. And I think that that got instilled in me in a very early age, the South. After, after that, I've, I've led a really a gypsy life. My dad got into uh, insurance and each sort of, you know, climb up the corporate ladder was another move to another state and another school. And I did three different high schools in three years in three different states. It gets a little weird, you know, the new guy. And, you know, high school's tough enough. You're trying to, trying to get your identity together, figure out who you are, what you want to do, and try to fit in. And then you get jerked out of that into another place. Um, on one hand, it makes it easy for me to sit at a bar and talk to, talk to somebody that I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely instills a certain amount of instability um, throughout my life uh, I'll fast forward a little bit uh, when I moved to New York City to play music every September <laughs> I moved to a new apartment it's just this sort of you know thing in my bones it's like oh, I gotta I gotta move I gotta go someplace else um, I went to University of Connecticut 
uh, for a year. The plan was to study literature. That's I'd always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little kid. Playing music was something that I loved. I played piano, then trumpet. The happiest day of my life was getting braces, so I didn't have to play trumpet any longer. Nobody told me about Miles Davis back then. It was all school marching band stuff. So, you know, if someone hipped me to that, maybe I would have been a little bit different. But I was sort of on the path to, to go to school, and I figured I would, you know, get a master's and maybe a doctorate, be a teacher, write, you know. And, and somewhere in, in all of that, I was at University of Connecticut and wasn't really happy. I got accepted to Bard. My folks... It was just a situation where they weren't going to be able to afford it. It was a really, you know, it, it still is. But even back then, it was a pretty, you know, expensive school. And so I went, well, okay, screw that. I'll, you know, if I can't go do that, I'm going to go, I'm going to go be a rock and roller. And went to music school, uh, Hartford Conservatory of Music, and studied in their jazz and pop program. After graduating, played, played in a few bands in the area around Hartford. And I, I literally left school and was playing six nights a week in a band that it was, you know, kind of a Holiday Inn circuit band. So I had to play everything from Bossa Novas to the Top 40 stuff. It was good, you know, it was good, good education. I was playing with a keyboard player at the time who had, was, had lived in New York, was a session player in New York for many years, had gone to Eastman College, um, and he was at Wesleyan University studying ethnomusicology. He was studying Ghanaian drumming. I told, I warned you, man. My my stories go <laughs> they're long Thanks. and they they go around. Um, and Michael Holmes, brilliant, brilliant keyboard player, excellent songwriter. His uh, unfortunately, his career never really took off because he was like a spitting image of Elton John. And he had a trio. He played piano. He had a bass and drum guitar band. And it just didn't happen because it was like, we already got one of those guys. And so he went back to school. He was studying stuff. He was brilliant. And he was playing in this band while he was at school. And he asked me one night, we were sitting out on a break. And he said, so what are you, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing in Hartford? What are you going to do? I said, man, well, you know, I want to go to, I want to study with somebody in New York. I want to study with a great, you know, great guitar player. And he was, asked me who, and I named Buzzy Featon, I don't know if you know, you know, Buzzy, Buzzy was a session guy. He played with Stevie Wonder and Stevie Wonder's Wonder Love band during the time that, of Talking Book and, and like all of Stevie's early breakout stuff. Um, and he was a great session player, had a band called Full Moon. And I named a couple of other guys and, you know, was the, at that time Steely Dan was, you know, if you were a musician, Steely Dan was the band. Mm-hmm. and just the amazing guitar players that played on all those albums. And I was like, you know, there's some guys in, in Dan and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you know, let me give you, here, I'll give you a phone number, a couple of phone numbers in New York. You call these guys, find out, you know, who, who's teaching. So he gives me Steve Gadd and Tony Levin's phone numbers. Now, even as a kid, I knew that, you know, well, at that time, I, I mean, those two names have been on <laughs> albums, you know, even back then, it was like a crazy list. And I was like, you know these guys? He goes, oh, yeah, that was my band <laughs> in New York. And I, I was so stunned. And he said, yeah, call him up. Tell him I gave you the numbers and see what happens. So I called Steve Gatt up, talked to him for a few minutes. And he was like, yeah, I don't, don't really know. He actually answered the phone. That was the craziest part. And he said, no, you should probably talk to Tony. And I called Tony Levin. Tony first thing was like, well, if you're playing with Michael, why do you need lessons? Why don't you just move to New York? And I was like, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm right. And he said, well, there are two guys, Steve Kahn and Elliot Randall. 
from Steely Dan. And I went, I, I will go study with Elliot Randall. And Elliot was my entree into New York. And I took a few lessons with him, which basically was sitting around listening to albums and trading licks and him turning me on to this endless music, a lot of it that I had, I had not been exposed to. You know. At that time, I would have been about 25. Yeah, I was in New York from 76 to January 1st of 1985, which was when I got on a plane to go <laughs> with Mark to uh, Montserrat to work on the album. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of the life of Jack Sonny here on Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Jack Sonny, then an aspiring writer and musician who had a brush with fame when he became a guitarist with the band Dire Straits. I was in New York. I initially went to try to be a side, side guy, session player, and that really wasn't my thing. That wasn't my temperament. I don't have the diplomatic and political skills to do that, <laughs> to just grin and play. And um, so I... I started playing in bands. Uh, it was a great music scene in New York at that time, the late 70s and early 80s. It was, disco was still sort of happening, kind of coming down. The punk scene was starting to come up, and there was a really vibrant singer-songwriter folk thing still happening in the village, in Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Village. And that's where I ended up gravitating to. I had a band, my own band. I was playing in other bands. I ran a Monday night jam at a place called Kenny's Castaways that became sort of the place for anybody who was around in town to come and come and hang out and jam. Mm-hmm. At one point when I decided that I wasn't going to be a session player, that I was going to try to do my own thing or find a band, I got a job on 48th Street in New York in a, in a guitar shop. And I had worked in record stores and, and music stores as a kid. And worked at this place called Rudy's Music Stop. And it, it was the prototypical boutique guitar shop. It was all parts, and it was at a time when Fender and Gibson weren't making great guitars. and It, be, it became the center of the universe for guitar players in New York. You know, I sold guitars to Pete Townsend, and I mean, just, it, it was everybody, right? That's true. I don't know, start dropping names, but... And, you know, one day... I came into work and Rudy, the owner, was like all excited, and and I said, "What you know? What?" And he's going, "That guy, that guy that you he gave me, I gave, had given him the Dire Straits album, the first album with Sultans of Swing on it." Because I, I, this always you know sounds ridiculous, but I wasn't a big fan. I was never a big fan of the band. I, at the time that that album came out, I was so deep into Bowie and Talking Heads and Adrian Ballou and Carlos Allen, that sort of funk, hard rock, Hendrix thing, right? And I heard Sultans of Swing and thought, well, that's a cool tune and great time. You know, it sounds like J.J. Kale and Dylan and all that. And I've, I've done my blues thing and I'm sort of somewhere else. So I gave the album to Rudy because I knew he, you know, it's got that pure Strat tone and we were all about tone. And I said, you're going to love this guy. And he did. 
he comes in, I come in the store one day, months later, and he's all excited, and he's, he's telling me, that guy, that guy from Dire Straits came in. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, when Jeff Beck shows up, I'll get excited, you know. And, and Mark wandered in later, and he came into the store to do a, a – um, they had set up a, an interview. He had a TV interview that he was doing with the local guy, so they did it in the shop. And I, I had been out all night. Part of my routine in those days started to fall into, like, working at the shop. I would go home. I'd take a nap. I'd wake up. I'd go play a gig because you don't start gigs until, you know, some of my gigs didn't start till midnight because the bars were open until 4. And then I would go to after-hours bars and hang out. And often I would go to the store, unlock it, and, like, fall asleep on the f- <laughs> crash out on the floor until it was time to open the store rather than go home. This wasn't one of those days, but I'd been in an after-hours bar, and I was still drunk and, and hungover and, you know, met Mark, and he looked at me and he said, man, you know, you look like you could use some hair of the dog. And we went out after the interview, after the store closed, we went out for a drink, and we became drinking buddies from that day on for three years. I mean, when he was in New York... We just hung out, and either at his house or we'd go out to the clubs. He, he used to come and sit in with my band, and um, there was never any discussion about me playing in his, his band. I was interested in, in him as a dude and a great guitar player, but it wasn't like I was, dude, get me a gig, get me a gig, get me a gig. There was some talk about, you know, uh, if he ever thought that I had gotten a bunch of tunes together that, you know, he might produce it or mm-hmm. something, but... Never, never really came up. As a matter of fact, he, he used to ask me, like, why I was hanging out with him. His fame had happened so quickly that, you know, over time, he didn't have a lot of people that he, my feeling, he didn't have a lot of people he could trust, you know. And later on, I kind of saw it up very up close, right, how that, how that things change. And I, t- <laughs> I told him one night, it's like, look, man, I've played with great guitar players. I've studied with great guitar players. I know great guitar players. You're a great guitar player. And... Uh, you know, I have to believe that I'm one phone call away from what, where you are, or else I might as well quit. New Year's Day of 1983, I had been burning the candle at both ends, living that lifestyle. Nothing was happening for me. All of my friends were getting gigs, and David Bowie came and took my entire band except for me. And I was the guy who turned my, some of my bandmates on to, it's like, you got to be listening to Heroes and these albums. And it just felt like lightning was striking all around me and not me. And I just, it broke my brain. You know, I literally just, I collapsed um, and was ill for about nine months before they could kind of figure out what it was. And they never really figured out. They just kind of cured it. I had this massive migraine for, for nine months. So, you know. Dr. Freud will tell you that I brought that on and all that, which I believe now. And it just, I was unhappy and it wasn't happening and I was in despair of massive depression. And I decided, okay, if it's going to kill me, I'm done. I got to go. I'm, I'm, I'm done. This is, you know, I was approaching 30. It was like starting to lose my hair. It was like, this is not going to happen, you know. And I decided to go back to school. Early December of 1984, I got accepted to a full ride at Fordham on a Rockefeller grant for this special experimental school thing that they were doing for guys coming back to 
school. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm going back to, I'm going to go do what I set out to do to begin with. This has been an interesting sort of round and, you know, I'll deal with waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and going, you know, if I hung on just one more day, was it with that, you know, another week, would that have done it? I got a phone call from Mark. I hadn't told him at that point that I, I had decided to, to leave. I hadn't told anybody that I was going to go back to school and do anything. I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? I was like, ah, oh, you know, just down here working on the album. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, everything all right? And he's like, yeah, you know, we, uh, I had to, I had to l- let the other guitar player go. Let's get, and this was Hal Wins at the time. And, uh, and I said, oh, man, that's a drag. And then there's silence, you know. And he says, "Well, you know, what are you doing?" And I said, "I'm just getting up. I'm getting ready to go to this, go to this shop and open it up." And he's like, "No, no. What are you doing?" And I said, "I don't know what you mean." And he said, "How would you? What would you think about coming down and finishing the album and doing the tour?" And I, you know, it's like one of those things where I pulled the phone away, knocked it on the counter, just kind of going, "Did I?" Are you kidding me? Now? You, you ask me this now? And, you know, it takes you about 30 seconds, right, to, to go <laughs> college, your rock and roll dream, you know. And I said, oh, okay. He goes, no, this is real. He said, I'm going to have the manager call you, you know, and you can talk to him. And I, I said, well, I can't leave the shop. It's Christmas. <laughs> that was like my first, my responsibility to Rudy. I said, I can't leave the shop. I got to work through the holidays, man. And he goes, it's okay. I've talked to Rudy. We're, you know, we're taking a break at Christmas. You'll come down in, in January. Okay. So, you know, I go to work, talk to Rudy. Rudy's laughing. He said, so you got the phone call. Next thing I know, literally, I'm on, the, I'm on a plane. New Year's Day, I'm sitting in first class for the first time in my life with him, Neil Dorfman, the producer, an engineer for that album. And on the seat next to Neil was the um, digital tapes in their, the masters for the albums strapped in their own seat. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh man, I used to, that's like the Allman Brothers used to buy, <laughs> buy seats for their <laughs> guitars. This is, um, this is really happening. And it was all about to happen. And he probably still couldn't believe it himself sitting there in first class next to all these professionals working for a real big international band. And Dire Straits at the time was, well, it was as big as you could get. And working with a guy like Mark Knopfler, one of the universally regarded and respected stars in the business because of his musical talent, his writing talent, he was the real thing. And my goodness... Sitting next to those masters strapped onto a seat. Wow. Then you knew. You knew it was the big time. When we come back, Jack Sonny's story continues here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with our American stories and the story of Jack Sonny. When we last left off, the young musician had received the call of a lifetime when Mark Knopfler, lead singer of the Dire Straits, asked him to join the band on tour and to help record the Brothers in Arms album down in Montserrat, an island in the Caribbean. We were down there for a couple of months working on the album, came back to New York, continued to work on the album, started started rehearsing. The album took forever. It was a mess. It was in pieces. And, you know, I, people were worried. Everybody was worried except for Mark. It was really interesting to watch. I, I had watched Love Over Gold go from his, his, literally from his notebook, figuring out tunes in his living room to the finished project. So I, I, I had watched him work. I'd watched him do soundtracks and stuff. So I kind of knew knew how he worked and all that stuff. And, you know, when he first, when I got there and he first pulled up some of the tracks, <laughs> my first reaction was, you've been here for four <laughs> months and this is what you've got? You know, it was like, what are these tunes? And he had approached that album in a totally different way. He, he had gone and done some Brian Ferry stuff and saw how Brian and Rhett Davies put Roxy Music albums together, which were basically, in a lot of ways, how Bowie and other guys were doing and were building up tracks. And the craziness, the, the surreal piece of it started from, from there in Montserrat. I had been working behind the counter of a guitar shop, ready to go back to university. I'm down in Montserrat in the studio that, you know, owned by George Martin, who one day... I'm sitting after lunch, I'm sitting in the control room by myself. The door opens up and Sir George Martin walks in and sticks his hand out and introduces himself to me. Like, I don't know who he is. Hi, I'm, I'm George. A couple of days later, <laughs> you know, Neil Young comes wandering down the hallway. You know, he had been sailing the Caribbean and just wanted to stop by and see the things. Like, wow, I've seen that guy and he was in my first concert. And Sting shows up one day. He was there on vacation with his family, and Mark invited him up to the studio to hang out and check some stuff out. And he had, Sting had dinner with us. And after dinner, Mark says, hey, come, come on down. There's a, a song that you know I want you to hear, and I want you to sing on it. Sting, we go down to the control room. We're sitting there, and I knew all the musicians in Sting's band. This was the year when he had the Blue Turtles band. So it was all New York musicians, Omar Hakim, um, Dolette McDonald and Janice Pendarvis singing. It was that band that was in the movie, the documentary that they did about it. So Sting and I were talking about mu- you know, music and musicians and jazz and all that kind of stuff. And he's sitting here, I'm sitting here, Mark's sitting on the other side of him. And Mark's, so we're lined up behind the control room and, and they put up the track for, of Money for Nothing. Right? We're listening to it. Everybody's listening to it. And at the end of it, yeah, but Mark says, to, you know, turns to Sting and says, Sting says, so what do you want me to sing? And, and Mark sang him, you know, I want my, I want my MTV. Now that's the, those are the seven notes to don't stand so, don't stand so close to me. And Sting looks at Mark and then he turns and looks at me and goes, is he effing kidding me? <laughs> and I said, no, he's serious. And I think, you know, I said, yeah, man, you should, you know, it'll be fun. And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, okay. And he wandered into the, you know, rolled the tape and in two takes, you know, sort of did his parts on that and the barking dog at the end, and he was just having fun. Um, that whole thing came back around to the, to the point where 
Sting is the only person who's ever gotten writing credits on any song Mark has ever had written. He owns all his publishing, except for that one, too. <laughs> and uh, Sting made more money off of that than I did on the whole <laughs> So, but, you know, it was just surreal, right? I'm, I'm hanging out. This I'm leading this life. We go to, we come back to New York and hang out. I'm, all my friends are losing their minds. I'm, you know, having a great time. We go to England. We get off the airplane. At this point, the whole band is is gone back to now. I knew the band was big, you know, and, um, but you know it hadn't been big in the states for a long time. And uh, so when I got to, we get off the plane. There's like paparazzi. I mean, there's like photographs. All these flashbulbs are going off, and I swear they got the back of my head because I kept turning around, going, "Who are they taking pictures of?" <laughs> And I had no idea how huge that band was in the rest of the world. I mean, in some places, like we played Israel, it was like the Beatles had arrived or something. There was like radio broadcasts. They've just gotten off the air, airplane. They're in their limousines. They're coming to the hotel. We got to the hotel. There's just like crowds. It was, that was my first sort of, you know, taste of it. We get to Israel and we're playing this outdoor place outside the city walls of Jerusalem called the Sultan's Pool, which was at one point an actual reservoir, a pool. And it was people as far as I could see. And people up on the old wall of Jerusalem, people on the city walls, helicopters, you know. I mean, it was an out-of-body experience. I've, I've tried to describe it to folks, and when I was working on my memoir, I was like, Writing it, it's like I was watching a movie of me. I was standing behind myself, about two feet <laughs> behind and to the right, just like watching this movie. This is like, this isn't real. This isn't, who is doing this? And that sensation lasted for a long time. I've never had stage fright, ever. Um, it's, for me, it's always like, let's, let's just do this. Let's have fun. And it never bothered me. And I never had any fear. I just... Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And we played soccer stadiums, outdoor places. Again, people as far as I could see. When we got to the States, the band, as I said, the band hadn't been that popular. They, they had trouble with the promoters booking any place bigger than like the Fox Theater in Atlanta or the Syria Mosque in Pittsburgh. The Wang Center in Boston, you know, smaller, like 18, 1500 seater, 1800 seaters. And then when the album blew up, suddenly we were playing the garden, you know, Madison Square Gardens and the Boston Gardens and, you know, the indoor arenas thing started to happen. Um, in, in Australia, New Zealand, we, you know, again, literally people as far as I could see. <clears throat> and Live Aid, Wembley Stadium, fully packed, you know, the television things going on. It, it was Sting, Sting we're, we're waiting behind stage to go on, and Sting comes up behind me and, and nudges me, and he's going to come out and sing, sing his parts with us. And I was the one who would, who would lead those parts and sort of guide people. And, and he, he's, he's looking at me, and he's going, oh, I can't believe how many people are out there. Are you nervous? And I'm looking at him thinking... I said, no, man, honestly, I said, I've waited my entire life for this. This is, you know, this is it. 
And then, you know, uh, we did 250, 256 shows in 354 days. And because of the time period and, you know, the years that that was, and Mark's sort of approach to his non-rock star sort of profile, you know, we did buses, you know, a lot. We did Europe by bus. We, there were no, no limos. There were, you know, no private jet. We had finally sort of in, in Australia on a couple of gigs because they were so far away, there was like private jets. But the rest of it was all, you know, commercial flights. And, and I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that people have the image of, especially at that time. And there were almost all one-nighters. And when we come back, we'll continue with this story, this great story, the life story of Jack Sonny, here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories and the story of Jack Sonny, former guitarist for Dire Straits. When we left off, the young musician was experiencing a world tour that culminated in front of 170,000 people at the Live Aid Benefit Concert in 1985. We did a series of shows in, in London where there were 14 shows in a row, or when we got to Australia, it'd be like 26 or 30 literally in, in Sydney. So we'd park up, but the rest of the time it was, it was one-nighters. It'd be like 13, 14, 17 shows in a row in different cities, and that's what you did. You got up, got onto the bus, tried to sleep, got, drove straight to the arena or the ice rink, whatever it was in Finland that you were playing, sit backstage while you listen to the drums, you know, sound check, and everybody sound check all day, play the gig, get back to the hotel, the restaurant in the hotel would be closed, left with like an egg salad sandwich from something and begging them to get, you know, open the bar or something. And it, you know, it, it was exhausting, but th- it's what I wanted to do, man. I mean, it was like, okay, this is, I'm good, you know, I'm good. The last show was in, of the tour was in Sydney. I'd turned 31 and we had done, done Australia. The band is all... British, except for me. We wake up the morning after the last show. The entire band and crew get on the bus to the airport, and I'm waving goodbye. Standing on the steps of the Siebel, Siebel Townhouse. It was the, the rock and roll hotel in Sydney. And I'm just like waving goodbye. And I'm not thinking that that's going to be the last time. I'm thinking, well, Mark's 
he takes a break. He starts working on an album. He writes an album, gets the band. They go back in, and the cycle just, that's what it had been all those years. And he just changed his mind, which, you know, is his prerogative and all that stuff. And I didn't, I hadn't heard from him. I moved to, to L.A. Um, record company people started convincing me that, it, you know, like, take advantage of this. It's time for your solo thing. We'll get you out there. And then, you know, you'll get back whenever Mark, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, sure. You know. Trouble was they wanted me, whatever I delivered, they wanted it to sound like Mark. And that's not what my stuff sounds like. So right. that, that, that sort of, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> And I was in L.A. scraping around to get some work. Um, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols had a, had a project that I you know, kind of might have bounced up against. We, we were talking about doing some things together, um, a few other folks. Um, and I, out of the blue, I don't even know how I heard I heard that from somebody that Mark was in town uh, producing, I think, Randy Newman's album at that time. I was, I was shocked that I hadn't heard from him. You know, and I tracked him. You know, tracked him down. Found out where. You know, I I knew where he'd be staying. And I kind of tracked him down, talked to him, and you know, said, you know, what's up, man? You had talked about me playing on all these all these other projects and stuff, and and I played him some demos of the things that I was working on. And I said, I don't I don't get it. I said, you know, we could be doing, and this is stuff that I've never told anybody, man. You're getting, um, you know, I said. I said, man, you know, the stuff that we were getting into at the end, end of that tour, there was a lot of guitar interplay. There was some really, I thought, wonderful stuff. And a lot of people thought it was good stuff. And it must have been, he must have liked it because he just let me do it. It became something that we would do. And I said, you know, man, we could work on something. It could be like Derek and the Dominoes. We could be like, you know, playing some really cool guitar stuff. And he just looked at me and said, that's not what I want to do. And I was like, oh, so am I supposed to go back to work at Rudy's now? You know? And I think maybe I saw him once, once after that. So I was kind of floundering. I was back floundering around and really angry, you know? Um, and I had gotten married. My girls, I have twin daughters. They were on their way, and I get a phone call from the management company after not hearing anything for like, I don't know, a year or something, <clears throat> saying the band <laughs> is getting to get, is doing uh, a concert for Nelson Mandela. And okay. And I said, and so, <laughs> you know, so what? It's like, well, you know, there'll be a couple of days rehearsal and, and you know, and do the show. But it's a charity, what they said. I said, okay. So what does that what does that mean? You know, well we'll fly you over and and put you up and do the gig. The band is going to do the gig. And wow! I was, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Number one, there's not a band. <laughs> there's no band. And if Morgan John have decided that they're going to do this thing, that's cool. But you know, and it's, oh well, you know, there'll probably be some rehearsal money or something. And I said, well, what is that? You know, money <laughs> and. I said, when is it? And they gave me the date, and it was literally like three or four days, one direction or the other of my daughter's due date. I said, I'm going to have to think about this. And they were like, what? And so I called them back the next day, and I said, look, uh, you know, I'm sure 
Nelson Mandela is a marvelous person, <laughs> you know, and I know that he has done amazing things. Um, I said, but I'm not missing missing the birth of my daughters for anybody. I said, so I'm I'm not going to be I'm not going to be around to do it. And there was silence and 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 then nothing. And, and I said, okay, see you guys around. And a couple of the other members of the band called and, and were like, what are you doing? You know, what about your career? And I said, I don't have a career. <laughs> and and uh, but I never heard from Mark. Mark never called and said, you know, dude, what you know, what's up? And we haven't spoken. I haven't. We haven't talked since. And you know, there's two sides to every story. I'm sure I was a, a you know, a my kids were born, and I got a job working for Seymour Duncan, who makes pickups. And I had I had been instrumental in helping them in their very early days in New York. I became like John the Baptist with those pickups on 48th Street and sold millions of them. So I had a great relationship. And I called them up and said, hey, you know, I don't know what I can do or what you need or whatever. Can we get together? Uh, you know, I'm going to quit touring. I got kids coming and need a career change. We got together with them and we had lunch and we were talking. And at the end of lunch, Kathy, who's the owner, the president, she said, you know, I think you'd make a really good marketing manager. And, you know, we need one of those. And you can start, you know, in a couple of weeks. I was like, Okay, literally, you know, learned learned on the job and found out that I really loved it. It um, if in high school, you know, if a guidance counselor had sort of really told me about this career in advertising or something, I I might have gone in that direction. It's a great combination of creativity and writing, and I got to do all kinds of. I mean, I dove straight into doing ads, and I did that for eighteen years for different companies. Line six. I worked for Line 6 for a while. Pod was my project and named it and the shape and all that stuff and went to work. The end of the career kind of was six years as vice president of advertising for Guitar Center Chain. I was trying to figure out a way to get out of the music instrument manufacturing business. I figured they're a big box retailer. If I can learn that trade, I could jump to something else and finally get out of this. (laughs) Trying to convince musicians to buy more gear. I did that for six years in the internal sort of the way it was going, what they were up to. Just after a while, I realized that I wasn't going to get anywhere. I learned a lot. I did radio. I did television. I did direct. I did all the catalog stuff. And I woke up one day miserable. You know, it was just like, I I don't want to do this. And I quit, sold my house, sold my cars. I moved to Mexico and started writing. I, st- I stayed down in Mexico in southern Baja and surfed in every morning and um, worked on a memoir because that just seemed like that's what it should be. What I wrote was not like a rock and roll memoir. Those stories have been told and they're, you know, they kind of get boring after a while <laughs> to me. But I was much more interested in what it was in me that made me pursue that dream to the point that it almost killed me. You know, and I don't mean from drugs. I just mean just the the lifestyle and the the putting up with the disappointment. You know, what is it that makes us, and not just me, do that? You know, people chase those dreams. When do you know when to give up? You know, how do you live with yourself once you give up? Then what happens when you've given up and the dream <laughs> gets handed to you, and you think because this all involves our identities. And then you think you've actually become this this thing, this rock star, guitar player, guy that you've been chasing to become your entire life. 
or a big portion of it, and you're, you know, Eric Clapton is saying, man, you know, <laughs> you play great. <laughs> You've got to come and play with me. And Townsend, and, you know, it's, it's like, this is kind of surreal. You become to believe it, and then it gets, it disappears. Just as quickly as it came, it was gone. I, was, I woke up one day, and it was literally like, uh, Dorothy coming back from Oz, waking up, kind of going, whoa, I had this dream. And you were there, and you were there, and you were there. And you look in the mirror, and you go, I, I don't even know who you are. And that was what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about how identity gets wrapped up in what we do as opposed to who we are and how you come to grips with accepting who you are. And, and what happens in those, in those situations. And that is so true, and it's so interesting that Jack Sonny understood the difference. Maybe he learned it the hard way when that jolt hit him, when suddenly it was all gone. In the end, the identity we draw from our work, well, we've got to learn to come to terms with that at some point in our life, because it's not who we are. It's just a part of who we are. And there's so much more to us than what we do. Jack Sonny's life story, and my goodness, what a ride he took. But my goodness, what humility to want to tell the story and the reasons why he wanted to tell the story. Really, a story about identity here on Our American Stories.